Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, Christ and His Disciples, The Study of Luke. The name of the sermon is called, A Savior Worth Seeing for Yourself. And Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 18, 35, 19, 10. Let's join Pastor David now. One of my favorite go-to questions when I'm when Sally and I are getting to know another married couple, we may have asked you this question, perhaps. It's a simple question, but one that I love to ask. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> uh, and often, it, it pretty quickly jumps into two versions of the story, does it not? <laughs> and uh, not, not every story, but, but oftentimes, um, one of the favorite narratives that I stumble across is who was pursuing who? Uh, sometimes you get some version of one saying, I was chasing, and the other saying, well, I was dropping breadcrumbs, you know, or, or one saying, I was pursuing, and the other saying, well, I was reeling. And then by the end of the story, you start to wonder, wait a second, well, who is, who is chasing who? <laughs> and part of the reason why I like to ask that question, part of the reason why I think that narrative, among many others, uh, is compelling is because it, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse uh, between God's love for us, us seeking him, yet him seeking us. It's put well by one of the songs that's been written of old. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found our Savior true. No, I was found of thee. And you can see that pattern. We see it in relationship. Uh, we see it uh, in marriage. We see it in God's love for us. And I think we're going to see that pattern again today in these two accounts that we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so meet me there. Look for these patterns as we're going through these portions of Scripture. Luke chapter 18, verse 35, and we're going to dip into chapter 19 all the way to verse 10. Page 1043, if you're using the the church Bible provided for you. Luke chapter 18. Let me read actually just verse 35 and then a couple verses in verse 19. Luke 18.35 says, As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Jump down to chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Two accounts, two interactions, two people, two experiences, one Lord, one Savior, one mission, one pursuit, him of us. And this portion, uh, the portion that we're looking at today, opens up with this blind man uh, crying out to Jesus for mercy, calling to him from the side of the road. Uh, this blind man that in Jesus' time uh, would have seemed very much so of our perhaps common experience and contemporary experience of stumbling across someone who's homeless, sitting on the side of the road, crying out. And here we have in verse 35, let me read it again in a couple more verses. 
When Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, a begging. And hearing a crowd going by, the blind man inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked the blind man, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Crying out to Jesus on the side of the road. And, um, and as he's sitting there on this road to Jericho, remember this famous road that led from Jericho to Jerusalem, a dangerous road, a difficult road. It's actually a road that we've seen uh, peek into one of Jesus' parables. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Here we have another person by the Jericho road, hoping, as it were, for some Good Samaritan type to come by his way. Because a blind person uh, in Jesus' time, uh, in some ways, may not be so foreign to our experience, as I mentioned just a few sentences ago, of, of encountering the homeless. Uh, that perhaps the blind person would have been unseen to the world around him, uh, would have been easily overlooked. Uh, that it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to pass him by. So you can see him there, can you not, on the side of the road, perhaps uh, some sort of collection place in his hand, hoping, uh, hoping for someone to move in mercy toward him. And he starts to hear the hustle and bustle in the crowd. Of course, he can't see. He's blind. So he asks, what's, what's, what's going on? What's unfolding? What's happening? And word gets to him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that phrase is not on accident, son of David. And don't miss the irony of who this is coming from, that ironically so, though the blind man, physically speaking, cannot see at all, he actually truly sees and understands and recognizes the identity of the Lord who's passing him by. It's interesting to know that in the Gospel of Luke, the blind man is the only person who addresses and identifies Jesus by this title, Son of David. That's a messianic title. That's the title of the king. That's the title of someone who recognized that this person is a descendant from King David. All the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, a king is coming. Anticipate him. Await him. And the blind man overlooked, unseen, brushed to the side, uh, unseen at least, or seen as a nuisance, perhaps at worst. The crowd rebukes him, be quiet, Shh. they're trying to silence him, he's crying out, he's being a disturbance, be quiet, be quiet. Son of David, have mercy on me, and he truly sees, he truly recognizes, he truly knows that this is the descendant of the very king, the Messiah that, that we've all been waiting for, the Messiah that the world has been waiting for. It harkens back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Remember when the angel pronounces that this child will be son of the king. This child will be of the Davidic line, ruler, and will reign over all things. The blind man sees it. And he cries out. And he cries out for mercy, recognizing that if this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who is son of David, if it is truly he who is passing by, the blind man sees and knows and recognizes he's his only hope. He's his true hope. That if the son of David is near, then he, he is the only one, Christ is the only one, who can truly handle all the deepest, truest, most challenging needs that you and I face. Crying out to Jesus, 
silenced by the crowds, yet yearning and calling for him. Watch how Jesus responds. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded the blind man be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, the blind man replies to Jesus, he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith, your faith, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, giving praise to God. Uh, notice there's another little irony there. The, the, all the people, verse 43, the same group of people that were kind of hush-hush trying to silence this annoying blind person on the side. Now here at the end of the passage, they're all praising God with him. First hindering him, now praising the Lord for what they have seen happen right before their eyes, that this person's crying out to Jesus for mercy, and he is healed. And as Jesus heals this blind man, don't let that phrase pass you by. When Jesus says, your faith has made you well, that phrase made you well, is the same word that's translated often saved. Your faith has saved you. That he cries out to Jesus in an incredible way for mercy. What, what would you like me to do for you? Let, let me recover my sight. And perhaps more completely and fully than we might realize, Jesus truly saves him. And there's a there's a beautiful mixing and, and almost confusing in a sense. Wait a second, was he saved spiritually or physically? Was he restored uh, by his soul or his body? And we see both. We see both at play as this encounter with Jesus unfolds and he calls to him for mercy, the mercy and loving kindness and care and compassion and restorative work of Jesus Christ brings renewal. It brings healing, it brings salvation, perhaps in a more complete sense than we often realize. See the power of Jesus, see the power of Christ, the son of David, as he interacts with this blind person. And in some ways, um, it's not a surprise to us per se, as was read at the beginning of the passage, we see that the Lord is the one who, rec who gives recovery of sight to the blind. We saw at the, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, remember the work that Jesus said that he would be about throughout this book? Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, quoting from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here we see that same work. What Jesus said he would do, he is doing for this blind person here in this passage. See the power of Christ. He's not just a person. He is a person. He's human. But he's not just that, is he? That we see in this healing, transformative work that the very same God... <laughs> The very same God who is present in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, formless and, and void. He speaks, and existence comes into existence. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made that was not made by Christ, by the Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
This is the Jesus of Nazareth that is walking by that Jericho road, the, the blind man hoping for someone to have compassion and care on him, crying out for mercy, and he encounters Christ, God himself, that the very God who is present in creation is the very Christ who has the power and the ability to bring about recreation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That when you encounter the merciful, gracious, transformative work of Christ as a response in faith, do you see who you're encountering? The very creator God of the universe. At the very deepest of needs, the very hardest of challenges, the very things that would seem irreversible. And in Jesus' time, blindness was understood as absolutely an irreversible thing. It's a miracle that this would happen. Yet, in the presence of Christ, it's but a question. What would you like me to do for you? What would you like me to do? Recover my sight. And because of his faith, in response to his faith, we see Christ bringing about this healing miracle. Notice again the pattern. The blind man calls for Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But it is Jesus who commands him come to him. It's Jesus who stops, commands, sees, recognizes, heals, and transforms. Who's pursuing who? <laughs> I sought the Lord. Have mercy on me, son of David. And afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found a Savior Jew. No, I was found of thee. Who's pursuing who? We see it here in this encounter with the blind person, and we see it here again in this next portion. Check this out. Chapter 19. Look how this continues. Now he's entering Jericho. Verse 35 of chapter 18, he drew near to Jericho. Now he's entering Jericho, and he's passing through. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. <laughs> for he was about to pass uh, that way. Now let's, let's leave Zacchaeus in the tree for now. There he is up in that tree looking through the foliage, this wee little man that we've sung about since childhood. Leave him there, and let's talk a little bit about who he is, Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. And I think it's important to know the context in Jesus' time of, of what taxes and tax collection uh, looked like. That, again, Rome, in a way, in Jesus' time, is, is the power at the time. And the Jewish people are an oppressed people. Now, tax collection worked in such a way where Rome would farm out tax collection or subcontract out tax collection to individuals or groups of people. So all these people, tax collectors, either individuals or people overseeing individuals, would collect taxes, and Rome would ask for a set sum, a lump sum. So they, they knew how much they were going to get. It had to be given by the tax collectors to Rome, but here's, here's the dynamic that's unfolding. The things that were being taxed, the tolls, the tariffs, the customs, anything that was being taxed, those rates weren't fixed. That didn't have a set price. 
Rome's going to get a set price through the tax collector, but the things that were being taxed didn't have a set price. So imagine yourself as a tax collector. You are going to owe a set amount of money to Rome. You could set the price however you wanted to set it. You swallowed the losses because Rome was going to get what Rome asked for, but my friends, do you see what happens with the gains? All Rome needs is what Rome asked for. So do you see the dynamic that in Jesus' time, there was nothing set in place other than the integrity of the individual to, to, to charge whatever they wanted? And it was not uncommon in Jesus' time for tax collectors to become absolutely rich. How and why? Because they would set absolutely exorbitant rates, extortionate rates. They would, they would set ridiculous rates. They would pocket the excess because, again, all that Rome needed was what they agreed upon. And you wouldn't want to swallow the losses. And if you could pocket the gains and no one was the wiser, then things worked out if you were a tax collector in that way. But remember, Rome is the oppressor. The Jewish people are an oppressed people. And that means the tax collectors often lived up to their reputation of getting really, 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 really rich by unjust and wrong and immoral means. And you can see very quickly how hated tax collectors were in Jesus' time. Remember in Luke chapter 5, people were grumbling. He's, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. No one would have liked tax collectors in Jesus' time. They were the absolute embodiment of, 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 of oppressive collaboration that they were complicit in wrongdoing and getting rich off the backs of fellow oppressed people. People hated tax collectors. Now, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He oversaw a group of tax collectors, which means he would have been doubly hated, an organizer of this kind of work. And he's the one standing in this tree. We left him over here a few minutes ago. He's still there in the tree waiting to see Jesus. You can see him peering through the foliage, and it makes you wonder, what, what drove him? What drove him to climb that tree to get a peek of Jesus? And the text doesn't say. We don't know. For the blind man, it seems to be more obvious. He's blind. He turns to the son of David and hopes for mercy. He's asking for mercy. Why is Zacchaeus in the tree? We don't know. Could it be curiosity? He's just curious that... Christ is coming through town and word is getting around who Jesus is and Zacchaeus wants to get a peek. It could be. Could it perhaps be that that word from Luke chapter 5 has trickled all the way to Luke chapter 19 that Jesus is the kind of person who eats with tax collectors and sinners? That the blind man would have absolutely known what it feels like to be overlooked. Zacchaeus would have known what it felt like to be absolutely despised. Both people in a way, marginalized in, in their society for different reasons. The blind man, blind, begging on the side of the road, unseen, or, or seen as a nuisance, overlooked often. Zacchaeus, despised, hated. That more often than not, the glances that would come Zacchaeus' way were glances of hatred and frustration, daggers in their eyes, coming towards Zacchaeus, and he would have been an outsider in completely different ways. One poor, one rich, one powerless in a way, one utilizing their influence for unjust ways of, of, of getting wealthy off the backs of the oppressed. Has word trickled from Luke chapter 5 that Jesus eats with 
people like me, perhaps Zacchaeus is wondering, it doesn't say, we don't know, but what we do know is he wants to see, and he's so committed to seeing, he climbs us in this sycamore tree, <laughs> and he's peering and looking to Jesus, and look how this, look how this unfolds, look how this unfolds. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowds, the people, when they saw it, they all grumbled. And capture the scene. Look at the scene. Jesus, as he's walking through Jericho, as he's passing through, he stops, he looks up, and he sees Zacchaeus in this tree, and he invites himself over to his house. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus is overjoyed. He's overwhelmed. He's shocked. This doesn't happen. You don't get an invite like this. You would rarely get an invite from anyone if you're a tax collector. People hated you. He would have been very accustomed to that. It would have totally caught him off guard for this kind of... <laughs> self-invitation over to his home, over to his home. And remember, in Jesus' time, hospitality was huge. Hospitality was not just, hey, we're hungry and we're going to the same place. Let's grab some food together. It's at least that, and that's a wonderful thing. But it's so much more. Hospitality is, is one of the ways that you show care and love, in some ways still today, of course. Hospitality is one way that you show close association, even acceptance and you can start to see why the crowds are getting a little bit uncomfortable. What do you mean? What do you mean a close association with this kind of person? What do you mean acceptance of this kind of person, this tax collector? And that's why it's no surprise that the crowds are grumbling. Remember the story before the parable of the prodigal son? The Pharisees were grumbling because Jesus is the kind of Lord who associates with sinners. Here we see the crowds again grumbling. What are they doing eating with him? Because it would have been in Jesus' time, the common understanding would have been a tax collector. Tax collector? You mean the collaborator with, with oppressors getting rich off the backs of the oppressed? You don't eat with people like that. You cancel people like that. You don't associate with people like that. You take delight in dragging them through the mud. You, you, you scorn them. You mock them. You wish for their demise. You hope for their undoing, and then you quietly celebrate it when it happens. That's what you would do to a tax collector. What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you spending time with this person? Why are you eating with this person? Did you catch it? <laughs> Jesus actually told us why in this little word. Look at this. Verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, I must, I must, I must stay at your house today. And this must is not the must of begrudging necessity. Oh, okay, if, if you force me, if I have to, I have to do it. It's not that kind of must. It's the must of divine mission it's the must of, of I want to. It's the must of I need to. Need to as in compelled, not need to as in, oh, if I have to. He has to because Christ is the kind of Christ. He's not come for the healthy but the sick. He's not come for the righteous but the sinners. He's not come for those who are all put together. He's come for those who are falling apart. He's come to seek and to save the lost. This is the kind of must that shows the loving care and compassion of our Savior. 
We see it in other places in Scripture. Remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters? He says in that passage, I must go through Samaria. You look at the map and you say, you don't have to go through Samaria. I must go through Samaria. It's like us saying, i got to drive from Gurney to Chicago, but I must go through Kenosha. (laughs) What do you mean must? Look at a map. You don't have to go through Kenosha. I must. Something else is going on. I have to. I need to. I'm driven to. My mission compels me to. I've come to seek and to save the lost. And that's why Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. And that, my friends, is a glimpse of the care and compassion of, our, of the heart of our Lord and Savior. Do you see it? He loves the despised. He's come for them. His mission is for them. And we have to see that Jesus, in coming to Zacchaeus' house, he's not coming to endorse his wrongdoing. He's not coming to celebrate his evil or his injustice. He's coming to transform it. He's coming to heal it. He's coming to heal Zacchaeus, and the effects of that transformation are going to be broader than you might realize, broader than we might initially think. Look at at what unfolds next. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stands... But we don't know, was it before the meal, was it during the meal, was it after the meal, we don't know. He stands and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now hold on to that word, fourfold, that amount. That's not accidental. It's actually quite significant. Fourfold would have been the amount of money that Zacchaeus would have been demanded to hand over if he was found guilty under Roman law. So if someone said, hey, listen, wait a second, I looked at the books of what you're doing, Zacchaeus, something's not adding up here, something's wrong, and I'm taking you to court. Now, if Zacchaeus was brought to court, and if the Roman uh, law found him guilty, it would have demanded that he would have made restitution for those whom he has wronged fourfold. Now, hold on to that idea. Hold on to this thought. And think about it this way. Perhaps every single one of us, whether you know about a situation, or you know someone, or you have someone close to yourself and your family, or even you yourself, you might know the pain of what it feels like to be wronged or have someone that you know or love wronged and then watch the wrongdoer essentially get away scot-free? Have you seen that pain before? Personal levels, national levels, global levels? Maybe that's impacted you personally. That's a distinct kind of pain, is it not? To, to, To have the pain of being wronged and then to seem like, wait, they're just getting away with it. Nothing's happening. There's, nothing's being brought to resolution. Nothing's being reconciled or brought, or, or brought to justice. That's a unique kind of pain. You might know that. You might have experienced it. Think about it this way. You might know or have seen or experienced the partial comfort. And I say partial comfort. I'll, act, I'll uh, unpack that in a little bit. The partial comfort of seeing someone work to make right a wrong, but that restitution is forced upon them by an external force from the outside in. That they had to make right wrong because they were caught, because they were cornered, because they were pressured. Now, if you've been wronged, that is a comfort. It is a comfort. 
but it's a partial comfort. Because if it's coming from a heart that doesn't want to, if it's coming from a heart that's not transformed, there might be things set in place to make right or wrong, but it's not coming from a heart that wants reconciliation at all. You might have seen that. You might have experienced that. You might know of that. Now think about that. We all know what it looks like, the pain, when someone gets away free, scot-free as it were, in a wrongdoing. You perhaps might even know the partial comfort of having a restitution take place, but from pressure from the outside in. But let me ask you this. What in the world? What in the world? What on earth? What in this universe would motivate anyone to do that willingly? freely, of their own choice. My friends, what would cause Zacchaeus? He is a chief tax collector. He oversees a group of people. He admits that he has done wrong. It's not just a wrong that he's admitting for himself. It's a wrong that he's admitting for his entire group. What would cause someone to willingly do that? Zacchaeus is rich. Half of his, his stuff, he says, I give it away to the poor. And if I've wronged anyone of anything, and that's not an if, as if Zacchaeus is thinking, I don't think I've done wrong. He knows he's done wrong. Because I know I've done wrong, I restore everything to those people I've, I've done wrong to, and I restore it fourfold. What would cause someone to do that, motivated from the inside out? My friends, the gospel. The gospel, and only the gospel, only the gospel can bring about that kind of motivation from the inside on out. We've all seen it when it doesn't happen. That's painful. We've all seen it when it's been forced to happen. That's a partial comfort. What the world is not used to seeing or perhaps has not seen is what that looks like when it comes motivated from the inside out. What motivates that? The only thing, my friends, that could motivate that kind of desire to make things right only thing that could motivate that is the kind of love that motivated God to leave glory to come to us, to work to make things right with us, to self-sacrificially give of all of his glory that we might be reconciled. Do you see all the elements in place in Zacchaeus' heart? Somewhere along the way, between climbing up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, <laughs> to giving away half of his stuff in this meal, somewhere between that space and in that process, in Zacchaeus's heart, you can see it from the effects of what are taking place in his life. Somewhere along the way, he felt uh, conviction. I've done wrong, and I've hurt other people in the process. He felt it in such a way that he uh, was, was moved uh, to respond in response to the loving pursuit that Jesus has encountered in his life. Jesus says, I must eat at your house today. I'm coming to you. He's showing him grace. He's showing him mercy. Conviction. Uh, motivated to respond to Christ's initiating grace and not just seeking reconciliation, but radical generosity. And he's, and he's willingly, joyfully setting things in motion to make restitution on behalf of all those who he has wronged. All of those components all together, the only thing that's going to motivate that, my friends, is the gospel. It's the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus says salvation has come to this house, he's not saying, Hey, you are, gener you are generous, now you're saved. 
Hey, you've made right your wrongs. Now you're saved. He's saying the opposite. He's saying because you've been saved, his radical generosity, his work to make right the things that he has done wrong to others, all of that is evidence of faith. All of that is fruit of faith. You want to see what a transformed soul looks like? You want to get an x-ray MRI vision in the, in the life of a transformed heart and transformed person? The external fruit of that looks like what Zacchaeus is doing. Radical generosity. Recognizing and owning and confessing and working to make right with those whom he has wronged. That, my friends, is the fruit of a transformed life. It's one of the expressions of the fruit of a transformed life. You might bump into some people who say, listen, the, gospel, the gospel's got to stay in its lane. The gospel has nothing to say about the renewal and restoration of the world. Luke chapter 19 says, not so fast. <laughs> You're going to bump into others who say the opposite. That if we're really going to be about renewal and restoration in this world, we've got to get beyond the gospel. The gospel's not enough. We've got to get past it. We've got to get beyond it. We have to do something more than it. We have to do, uh, reach for something more than what the gospel offers. Luke chapter 19 says, not so fast. Be careful to underestimate the radical transformation of the biblical gospel. The gospel the penal substitutionary, vicarious atonement, faith in Christ alone, Christ in my place, my only hope, by grace through faith in Christ. That gospel, you take that gospel, plant it into the heart of the person, and my friends, the implications of a transformed heart bleed out into a transformed life, transformed work, transformed relations with people around you, transformed relations with people groups, Transform relations of, of entire regions. Do not underestimate the transformative power of the gospel in the, in the hearts and lives of transformed people. That real, true, and deep renewal takes place as an effect of the transformative grace of Jesus Christ. The very God who created all things, the very God who restores all things, is the very God that we are encountering in these passages, in this work. See him encounter the blind man. See him encounter Zacchaeus. And ask the question, who's pursuing who? <laughs> the blind man calls uh, to Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus commands him to come to him. Zacchaeus is standing in the tree, peering, seeking, looking, hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus. Yet it's Jesus who stops and looks and sees and calls and saves and transforms. Who's pursuing who? Think about your own life. Look at the blind man. Look at Zacchaeus. And do you see? You see yourself in their journey and see that you need him too. You need him. And you might be seeking him knowingly. Perhaps some of you are here because you are curious. You do want to learn more. You're wondering about what this Christianity thing is. Some of you might be seeking him and you don't even realize you're seeking him. You're seeking him by seeking other things that you're seeking to be a savior to you. You wouldn't call it a savior, but you are. The deep troubles that trouble us, do we not seek solace somehow? Do we not seek rest somehow? Do we not seek uh, comfort somehow? We might run to substance. We might run to, to uh, distraction, either through endless entertainment or through endless work. That's a savior. We're looking for help. We're looking for something to give mercy. You might run to comfort in the arms of another lover. That's a savior. 
You're looking for acceptance and care and love and compassion. Uh, We might run to all sorts of things to fulfill the huge God-sized needs questions of our life. Do you see what you're doing? You're seeking. You're looking. You're hoping for someone to pass you on the Jericho Road to have mercy and compassion. You're climbing a tree to peek through and see, is this my true hope coming along the way? But do you recognize, see, you need him too. You're just like the blind man. You're just like Zacchaeus, and so am I. And notice how different and similar they are at the same time. The blind man completely overlooked or seen as a nuisance. Zacchaeus, everyone knew and hated The blind man, people would have said, what are you doing? This is a waste of your time, Jesus. Zacchaeus, people would have said, shame on you for taking the time. How dare you associate with this person? The embodiment of oppression and evil. How dare you? Both of them, outsiders for completely different reasons. Both of them, seen, sought, saved, loved, cared for by the son of David. Why? He must. He must it's his mission. He's not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He's, he, he's not come for those who are righteous, but are unrighteous. He's not come for those who are all put together, but falling apart. This is the mission that he's been on all along. He's come to seek and to save the lost. See that you need him and see that he's come for you. He's been seeking you longer than you might realize. He's been seeking you in ways that you wouldn't expect. Sometimes Jesus comes through the side door of, of, of a crisis in your life. Something has completely fallen off the rails. The, the basket, the bottom of the basket has completely fallen out. Maybe your career has exploded. Maybe there's a, a close relationship, maybe with a child, maybe with your spouse that's falling apart. Do you not see Jesus peering through the leaves in that crisis, seeking you? He's chasing after you. He chased after the blind man. He chased after Zacchaeus, and he's coming after us. Both, both these people Sought but were hindered by the crowds, yet seen, sought, and saved by Jesus. And I think this passage, helpfully so, in the way that we need, is calling us to look through our need, look through the difficulty, look through the challenge, and see through it to the Savior who's already seeking you. The blind man can't see, blocked by the crowds, and looking to Jesus, only to find that Jesus has already been calling for him. Zacchaeus peering through the leaves, looking to Jesus only to see that Jesus has first sought him and invited himself over. Look through your need and see to trust the Christ, the Savior, who's already seeking you. Because whatever your need is, whatever it is, whatever form, whatever expression that looks like, I think you will see and recognize that all the more when you look to Jesus, all the more you're going to see that his mission has already been to seek you first. How do we know that? How can we say that so confidently? It's in these little details, verse 35 of 18 and chapter 19, verse 1. Look at this. Where is he going? He's drawing near to Jericho. Now, chapter 19, verse 1, he's entering Jericho and passing through. Where is he going? Jump ahead to chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said all these things, he went on ahead, where? Going up to Jerusalem. Do you know where Jesus is going? He's making his way to Good Friday. He's making his way to the cross. 
He's making his way to leave this cross empty. He's making his way to the tomb and then to leave that empty. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not just seeking the blind man, only him. He's not just seeking Zacchaeus, only him. He's passing through Jericho to go to Jerusalem so that he might seek and save the world. All who trust in him all who respond to his initiating grace by faith. He's been seeking you longer than you think. Longer than you think. Caring and loving and, and, and chasing after you. So when you look through your need to him, you are going to find a savior who's already been chasing after you, already been seeking you. And a kind of savior who pursues like that, my friends, is a kind of savior worth trusting. If he can transform the blind man, he can transform you. If he can transform Zacchaeus, he can transform you. And you might be able to resonate with either one side or the other, completely unseen, completely overlooked, or hated and despised and seen as the enemy. Whether you resonate with both or somewhere in between, do you see, do you not see Christ has come for you? He's here to seek and to save the lost. He must come. And that must is not a sign that he drags his heels to come to you. It's a sign that his feet are carried along by love to make his way to the cross to ultimately seek and to save you and me. See your Savior and trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, lift, lift our hearts to a place of worship and being overwhelmed, Lord, by how committed you are to coming for us. Lord, would you give us that kind of love for people? Give us the eyes that you have for the blind man. Give us the eyes that you have for Zacchaeus. Give us the heart, Lord, that motivated you to leave glory, to come to this humbling path that would lead to the cross. And Lord, give us the heart of a transformed heart that only that, only that you could accomplish, that from that central place of grace, our lives might be transformed, our community might be transformed, we might be transformed, and that you would receive all the glory every step of the way. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.com. Dot org.